0: we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. 1
1: Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious,
0: good morning again, family of God. It is good to see you, and I'm excited to spend some time with you looking at this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. Thank you, first of all, for all your prayers last week. Um, For me and my family, we are better now. We are on antibiotics, and hopefully we are not contagious. So uh, it's better for you and for us. We're excited about that reality. So thank you for your prayers for us. I want to start off with uh, saying this, that What we think about what God thinks of us will determine where we look for identity and what we do to find it. What we think about what God thinks of us will determine where we look for identity and what we do to find it. If I think God thinks of me like an angry father, then I might live life walking on eggshells, trying not to do something that will unnerve him, but I won't live with the freedom that God has promised to me in his word. If I think God thinks of me like a meticulous English teacher taking points off for every mistake that I make, then I might live life never feeling like I've done enough, Or, like that test, I might crumple up his commands and throw it in the trash. His word will never feel liberating to me. If I think God has abandoned me, then I might live my life constantly anxious, thinking if I lose control, I'll lose. So I white knuckle everything that is precious to me. Or I might live life angry, struggling to guard what is mine. If I think that God is constantly withholding some good from me, then I might try to look like a good Christian so he'll give me what I want, but I'll probably live with resentment. I might settle for simple sins that bring me comfort or pleasure. If I think God has treated me wrong, treated me unjustly, then I might pretend to love him by serving him, but I won't give him my heart. And I might struggle to find joy in life. In other words, what we think about what God thinks of us will determine where we look for identity and what we do to find it. And in today's passage, Peter, in one of the most glorious revelations in all of Scripture, is unpacking the truth about what God thinks about his children. And what we find is that we are more loved than we realized, and we've been given much more than we deserve. Now, this truth was vital for Peter's audience to understand, and it's vital for us. Peter's readers were living as sojourners and as exiles, as Jared's going to unpack more for us next week. They were not at home, even in their own families or communities, because they had chosen to follow Jesus. And they struggled to find identity and purpose. I know some of us are in the same boat. But Peter's going to teach us about both our identity and our purpose. So before we jump more into the text, let's, let's say a prayer. Let's ask God to help us to get what he wants us to get today. Father, I am both humbled by the opportunity to speak to your people, but I'm also confident that you're going to speak to your people because you've promised that the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And so we know that and we expect that you to, for you just to move among us, God. God, I pray for my friends and for myself that down deep in our hearts, you would, by your spirit, convince us of what you think about us. You would, down deep in our hearts, remind us of our identity in Christ. You would, down deep in our hearts, down deep in our congregation, down deep in our fellowship, we would, would, at our core, know that we are loved, that we are precious in your sight, I pray that all of our activity, all of our uh, desire for mission, all of our desire to make disciples would come out of that place of a loving relationship with you. So teach us, God, today to be who you called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's six identity markers we're going to talk about today about what it looks like, what you look like to God, about what God thinks about you. Six identity markers and one purpose. The first aspect of our identity that I want to spend some time meditating on right now is the reality that you are light. Everybody say, you are light. Everybody say, I am light. Everybody say, we are light. Now, we find this at the end of verse 9, starting with the word him. If you look in your bulletin, it's printed. It might be on your screen. It says, him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a people who used to live in darkness, but now you live in light. Now, in Scripture, darkness can often mean a lack of understanding. You need God to enlighten you to truth. Or it can mean wickedness, evil, or sin. Apart from Christ, you were both. I was both. Apart from Christ, we were groping around in the dark, trying to figure out who we were and what life was apart from God, what life was all about. Apart from Christ, we were living in sin, bound to our own passions and desires, living for ourselves, living in disobedience to the word of God. You ever walked around an unfamiliar room in the dark? You ever had that experience? I have. It is not a fun thing to do. In fact, sometimes it's not a fun thing to walk around a familiar room in the dark. Sometimes about two o'clock in the morning I hear something at my back door and so I go walk into the living room. But if you walk through a living room when you have children that have been in that place, you might stub your toe on a toy box that wasn't supposed to be there. You might step on a dinosaur and that is not what you were looking forward to. I can walk through the living room, I've lived in for 14 years, and I can still stub my toe and walk away limping. It's a familiar place, but in the dark, I can't see. And what Peter says is that's the way all of us were walking through life. We were blind to the real beauty and meaning of life. But now, what Peter says, is you, if you are in Christ, you have entered into God's light. Everything is made plain in the light of Jesus. In fact, in Ephesians, he even says that you are light. Jesus says you are the light of the world in Matthew 5. Whatever comes into the light becomes light. Now, how did that happen? What Peter says is that God called you. He called you. He said your name. He invited you to know him, and he invited you to trust him. He invited you to stop feeling your way around, trusting only in your own senses, in your own understanding, and to trust in the Lord even when you don't understand to walk with him. might help us to think about how he called us. How did he do that? How did he call us out of darkness? Well, here's how he did it. He stepped into the darkness. That's what verse 4 tells us. We come to him, it says, as we come to him, we come to him because he came to us first. That's what Doug Harink says. He came to us first. Jesus stepped into the ignorance He stepped into the wickedness. He stepped into the evil of the world. See, in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious, but he was rejected by men. He was rejected by men. And Scripture, all throughout Scripture, uses this metaphor of the cornerstone to talk about that. Jesus was the cornerstone. You know what a cornerstone is? Some of us might not know because most of us are not in construction. And even if we're in construction, we might work with bricks but not with stones. What a cornerstone was, if somebody were building a structure like a house or a temple or a palace out of stone, what they would do is they'd march down to the stone quarry where they were carving out stones out of rock. Now, if you're taking an axe to some stones, you're not going to be very precise in in how those stones are going to come out. You're going to have some some misshapen stones that you tipped out of the rock. So what you would do if you're an excellent mason is you would look for the, 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 the best looking stone you could find. It would have to have straight angles because this was the stone you would lay on the corner. It would set direction for the other walls of the structure. You want it to have a nice flat top so as you build on top of this thing, you don't have leaning walls like you have in Pisa. If the wall leans too much, your whole structure would lean, and it could be dangerous for you and cost you a lot of money if it fell. So if you were a good mason, you would choose the best cornerstone. It would be precious to you because all of your work would depend on it, all of it. You choose the right cornerstone, and your structure stands, like the great cathedrals throughout Europe, and you'd be honored. You choose the wrong cornerstone, and your work and your reputation could become a pile of rubble, like we know all too well here in Oklahoma City and, and in Miami. Verse 5 tells us that God is building a house. It's a spiritual house, a house for his spirit to dwell. So he requires the perfect cornerstone. Look with me at verse 6. It says, for it stands in Scripture, and by the way, that, that pun is not in the original Greek, but it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter's quoting from Isaiah 28, a passage in which God is telling his people that the only way to life and the only way to true justice and the only way to true righteousness is through God's cornerstone. And that cornerstone has a name. What's his name? His name is Jesus. Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone. All of life, all of history, all of the created order makes sense, and it fits together in Jesus. He is the chosen cornerstone, the beloved and the only begotten Son of God who was perfect in all his ways. He was just in all his deeds. He was righteous in all his thoughts who came to us so that we could come to him. Amen? Now, you would think that someone like Jesus who healed the sick and raised the dead would be honored, but no. What it says is, in verse 7, that the reality is that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The political leaders of the day and the religious leaders of the day rejected God's chosen and precious cornerstone because they wanted to build their own versions of God's kingdom. Listen, if you and I want to build our own versions of God's kingdom, it is not going to work. It might stand for a decade, it might stand for a generation, but it will not stand forever. It will fall. They wanted to build their own versions of God's kingdom, so they rejected Jesus and crucified him, and he became, what you see in the next verse, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled over the rock that was supposed to be their foundation. They killed him. They rejected the cornerstone. But hallelujah, on the third day, God vindicated him. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He smashed the prison that death had built. Anyone who is built on him participates in the life of God. It's a house of the spirit. When Jesus came, he came as the only cornerstone. You can't have two cornerstones, family. You cannot have two cornerstones You can't take direction from two cornerstones at the same time. If you submit to Jesus' direction, then you can't submit to any other director. You can't do it. You're either built by Jesus or you're built by something else. Jesus said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You can use either metaphor. If you walk by the light of Jesus, you will walk in marvelous light. If you accept Jesus as your cornerstone and trust him as the only source of your direction, you will receive his honor. Here's your identity, family. Your identity, Christian. You are light. You are light. Which means you don't have to walk in darkness anymore. You're not confined to the dark. You're not confined to stepping on the metaphorical dinosaurs of life. You're not confined to stubbing your toe on every sin that plagues the world. You're not confined to that. You are free to walk in His marvelous light. You are light. That's the first identity marker. Everybody say, We are light. The second marker is that you are not alone. Earlier in, in, in this talk, in this message, we were talking about our concept of God, and we talked about me as an, as an, as an individual. If I think about, about what God thinks about me like an angry father, if he thinks of me as a meticulous English teacher thinks about me, or if I think about God has abandoned me, but one of the important points of this passage is that when you accept Jesus as your chief cornerstone, you become an us. You become an us. Look at verse 5 with me. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You can't make a house out of one brick. You can't do it. If we're going to be the house of God. we got to be stones, plural. We are together in this. Continuing in verse 5, he says, to be a holy priesthood. Now, this passage was used in the Protestant Reformation to defend the important biblical idea of the priesthood of every believer, the idea that neither you nor I need to go through any other human to get to 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 God. There's one mediator, there's one God, and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all at 1 Timothy 2.5. We don't need anybody else to come to God. That is absolutely true. Jesus is the one priest that we need. However, this passage also emphasizes the fact that those who are in Christ are priests together. We are a priesthood, a group of priests who minister together. We're together. This is emphasized, in the markers also given in verse 9, which we're going to come back to, would say a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are collective nouns. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm with you. Say, you're with me. Family, we're in this together. We are a family. This is designating a group of people, not individual persons. When we're called to Jesus, we are called to a collective, a new family, a new citizenry, a new body of people. You are not alone. One of the lies that Satan wants to com- convince us of is that you are alone. Nobody knows what you're going through. Nobody has any idea what you're feeling. This is unique to you. Nobody would understand. Nobody gets you. But the truth is that scattered over all the world are people who have our exact same history. History. They were all walking in darkness, and they all are now walking in a marvelous light. They have the same ancestry, We all the promises of Abraham and Moses and David that are ours. Which means that we should not succumb to the lie that we are alone. The lie of being alone will make you hide your sin, which Gavin told us last week is not a good idea. The lie of being alone will make you walk outside of community, saying, I can do this all by myself. But we know that coals that burn hot in the fire will soon cool off when they're not in it. we got to be together, family, because we've been called to it. We are a collective. We are not alone. Third marker, you are a chosen race. This is verse 9. You are a chosen race. Everybody say, a chosen race. Now, I've been thinking about this, and I've been somewhat hesitant. Because whenever you talk about being chosen, people are thinking about, people, evangelicals, are thinking about Calvinism. And I'm not talking about Calvinism, necessarily. I'm not talking about where you stay with predestination. That's all I'm talking about. What I'm going to say is this. The biblical principle is this. That is, the idea that you are chosen by God is biblical, and... It is vital to our health as Christians. We've got to get the idea that we are chosen by God. If you can pause the label of what that means for you and just think about the reality that, that this is important, I think, I think we need to get a grasp of what it means to be chosen by God. Now, now I, want to, I want to do that but looking through the eyes of Peter. How important would it have been to Peter to know that he had been chosen by Jesus? I think it would have been really, really, really important. Why? A number of reasons. One, Peter was a fisherman. As a fisherman, he was overlooked by society. He would have been a useful tool for production, but nothing else. Peter was a non-religious person. He was not a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. He wasn't a zealot. He wasn't an Essene. He wasn't qualified for scriptural interpretation. He wasn't qualified to live rightly under the law. When the religious leaders looked at him, they saw a sinner. He can't keep the law perfectly. There's no way. He's a fisherman. Peter was from Galilee. In Galilee, everybody in Galilee's got an accent. You show up in Jerusalem from Galilee, everybody's going to know exactly where you were from, what side of the tracks you were from. You can't speak the language. You got the wrong dialect. You got the wrong heritage. Peter denied Jesus three times. He shouldn't be worthy to be called a disciple. And yet, Peter was a disciple chosen by God. He was an apostle chosen by God to be sent out with authority to heal the sick and cast out demons and teach the word of God. He was called to be a fisher of men, not just a fisherman. He was called to tend God's flock to be a shepherd of God's people. What does it mean to Peter to be chosen by God? It means you can't tell me who I am. You can't deny the dignity uh, that, that God has given to me. Regardless of what you say to me, regardless of what you do to me, you can beat me, you can take my friends to jail, you can cut off my friends' heads, and I will rejoice because I've been counted worthy of suffering for his name because he knows my name. And he called me to be his own. The fact that Peter was chosen impacted everything for him. And if you're in exile, if you're a sojourner, if you've been cast off by family and friends because you follow Jesus, it should mean everything to you too. Because though the world may reject me, I am chosen by God. You are chosen, and you, friends, collective, are a chosen race. Now, race is a difficult word to talk about today. But one commentator said that this teaching of us being a chosen race will tear down walls of racism. Racism. In the kingdom of God, there's no room for racism. There's no room for prejudice. Here's the freedom we have because we're a chosen race. As a chosen race who have a new identity in Jesus, we are not limited to our own human set of traditions and customs. We're not limited to just seeing God through our own culture's eyes. We can, but we're not limited to that. As a black Christian, I can see Jesus through the eyes of my white brothers and sisters, through my Nigerian brothers and sisters, through my South Korean brothers and sisters. In Christ, Peter could say, and I can say, and you can say with Paul, all things are mine, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are ours. All the treasures of all the cultures are ours in Jesus. I can value what you bring to the table because we are a chosen race. We are one family. Everyone say, we are a chosen race. race. Let that go deep, friends. Let that go deep, family. Let that transform your minds and your hearts. The fourth identity marker. You are a royal priesthood. I'm excited about this, family. You are a royal priesthood. Everybody say royal. royal. Everybody say priesthood. We are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. We are royal in two ways. One, we serve a king. We have a new sovereign. We are called to sit with him in authority. It's a royalty. But it also means that our allegiance is not to any nation state, it's to Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven. The only way I can be a good American is by being first a good citizen of heaven. My citizenship has to be aligned to the right place, to the right party. That's the party of the Lamb. We are royal. We have a different political allegiance. We salute the cross. We're also priests. Look at the end of verse 5. We're chosen to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, spiritual sacrifices here are It's the whole life and behavior. All of our life we're called to sacrifice as we're led by the Spirit of God. Now, a priest would be someone who would come to the temple and they would come on behalf of the people. They would represent the people to God and God to the people, and they would make sacrifices to God. And they would pray for the people. Think about Moses making intercession for all the people. Now, we're not the ultimate sacrifice. That was Jesus. He is the the sacrifice that we need. That's the book of Hebrews, right? He is the sacrifice that we need. But we are also called to imitate him, to follow his example by offering spiritual sacrifices that are only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's the sacrifice of our entire life, which means my vocation, my finances, my relationships, my family, my money, all that stuff is sacrificed to God. And it's acceptable because of Jesus. So we offer ourselves the sacrifices, but we also offer prayers for the whole world. Y'all, I was walking through Roosevelt Middle School a few months ago. Not months ago. It's been a year and a half. 2020, where'd it go? A year and a half ago. Walking through Roosevelt Middle School. I'm looking at all the kids walking through the hall. And you know what I started to think about? I started to pray for some of these kids, and I realized I might be, The first person that ever prayed for some of those kids. There are some kids in those classes that I might be the only person that's ever lifted up their name to God before in their life. And that's everywhere you go. I know some of you, when you go to restaurants, you ask your waiter to pray for them. That might be the only person that's ever prayed for them in their life. Besides Jesus, the great intercessor, he's interceding for us, right? But your coworkers who you pray for at work, you might be the only person that's praying for them. That neighbor you have down the street, you might be the only person praying for, the only person who is presenting their name before God, asking that God would move in their hearts. Well, we have the freedom to be as a people of God, as a royal priesthood, people who are sacrificing themselves and their identity and their reputation because Jesus did it first, and, and we know that we are chosen by God. But we're also we're bringing the witness of Jesus to people that never have heard it before. We're offering prayers to God on behalf of the world. All over the world, as salt and light, Christians are scattered, and they're making prayers to God for the rest of the world. Let's hold up the south side for Jesus. Let's offer the names of every person in South Oklahoma City to Jesus. That's got to to move in every single apartment complex, every single neighborhood, every single school, every single workplace in our city. Let's be priests to God. When we pray for those coworkers or those friends or those lost parents, we are living in our vocation as, as, as priests of God. You are royal priests. So let's start walking back through. We are light. We are not alone. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. Not only that, we are a holy nation. Everybody say holy nation. Now as a holy nation, holy means both set apart and it means pure. We mean that people who have been freed by Jesus, we have been set apart for him. That involves what we already talked about as far as we have a new allegiance. We, we are set apart only for Jesus as our king. We are holy to him, but we are also called to be pure. To not make peace with sin or with wickedness or with evil. We are called to be a different kind of people so that wherever we go, whether it's to North Africa or the Middle East or to Wales or to Oklahoma City or somewhere else, we're going to live a different kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle that honors Jesus as Lord, that is set apart for him and him alone. And we're a nation. Again, we have a new citizenship. So that wherever we are, wherever we're scattered in, whatever nation that we're in, We're set apart for him alone. We're a holy nation, a pure nation, consecrated nation for Jesus. Now this last identity marker, number six, is beautiful. We are a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. We see that in verse nine. We see it reiterated in this awesome allusion in verse 10 where Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is quoting is the book of Hosea. And if you have your Bibles or if you have your smartphones, I would invite you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. Now, as you're turning there, I want to make the point and give some context Uh, There's a beautiful sermon by E.V. Hill on Hosea, I encourage you to go listen to, where he embodies the prophet Hosea. Now, Hosea was a prophet of God who God had called to go and find a prostitute and to go marry her. And what he was doing was symbolizing in Hosea's life what the people of Israel were to him, what his people had done, because he had betrothed them to himself He had called them his own. He had made them beautiful. He had made them a sight for all the nations by rescuing them from their slavery, rescuing them, redeeming them from Egypt. He had set them apart as his own. He had given them his his own law, his own constitution, if you will. He had done that for them. He had betrothed them to him. But they had left to go off to other gods. They had, in his term, prostituted themselves to other gods, And so he calls Hosea to be a physical embodiment of that by taking to himself a prostitute and to have children. And two of those children, he called them, he called Hosea to name them. And in chapter one, we see what he called them to name them. One of them, he called them to name, not my people. I want you to call your kid, Not my people. Because that's what, that's what my people have done, have done to me. By leaving me, they have said, they are not my people. I'm saying that if you don't walk according to my law, you are not my people. And I want you to name your second child, I want you to name him not mercy. Because you have left the mercy of God. I've given you all that you need to walk with me. But you've left it. You've In Spanish, you'd say, they, you've, you've left me. You've left my mercy. So I want you to name your kids not my people and not mercy, no mercy. But then in chapter 2 of Hosea, God, like he always does, he reveals again that this is all part of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That God has never left his people. They might leave him, but he won't leave them. And in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says this about this wife that has prostituted themselves and gone off with other lovers. He says this, he says, therefore, behold, I, is God, will allure her. I will invite her back. I will woo her. I will sweep her off her feet. I will give her what she really needs, even though she doesn't know she needs it for me. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth. At the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, I will restore her. I will clothe her. When all those other lovers who she thinks thinks loves her don't really love her and they treat her like junk, I'm going to call her back to myself. If you skip down to verse 21, he says this. He says, In that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. They shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I'm going to plant her as my people who will never, never, never be called anyone else's. I'm going to make them my people again. I will treat her with justice and righteousness and faithfulness and steadfast love. And look what he says. He says, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. See, here's the beauty of what it means to be called God's people. Is that by our own volition, we chose not to be. We are sinners by birth, and we're sinners by choice. When we choose to acknowledge some other thing in front of God, what we are doing is we are leaving the life and the mercy and the grace that he has for us. But what God in his mercy does is he redeems us. He buys us back. He gets us back. He allures us. He woos us to himself. He overcomes us. Our rebellion with his love. He runs after us. So when when Peter says that you were not my people, but now you are his people, you had not received mercy, You, you now have received mercy, what he's saying is you didn't want to be God's people, but he wanted you for himself because it was the best thing he could possibly do for you and exactly what you needed. See, when you responded to the call of God to accept the gospel, to believe on the cornerstone, you became the people of God. You became the people of God's covenant, the one with whom he never break promise, and you received his mercy, mercy that you didn't deserve, mercy that you had turned away. But he persisted. He kept after you. His love found you. And he redeemed you that 's what it means to be called god 's people, which means that if we if 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 we're trapped in thought processes like god you 're angry at me, nothing could be further from the truth god you 've abandoned me, nothing could be further from the truth god I, I think you're keeping. Tabs, on whether or not I'm good enough for you, nothing could be further from the truth, family. Because when we were lost and trapped and pursuing other gods, Jesus came to us to show us mercy and grace that we never could have earned. And if God did that when we were far from him, what is he going to do when we're his kids? When we're his bride? What we think about what God thinks of us We'll determine where we look for identity and what we do to find it. And the truth is, is that we are honored in God's sight. We are chosen and precious and beautiful to Him, and nothing can change that. Because that didn't come because of you. Luther said he doesn't love you because you're lovely. He loves you to make you lovely. So what does that mean? That's our identity. We are light. We are not alone. We are a chosen race. We are a loyal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who we are. So what's the appropriate response to that? We find that in the second half of verse 9 that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Would your purpose, family, proclaim God's salvation? That's what he's called us to do. And by just living a life in belief of Jesus, that's what you're going to do. You're going to see people that nobody else sees because God saw you and nobody else saw you. You're going to love people who nobody else loves because God loves you, loved you and nobody else loved you when you were unlovable. You're going to tell your friends about the good news of Jesus. Why? Because it's good news to you. It's not like you got to convince them to go earn their salvation. No, we get to invite them into the beauty of grace. We're going to make disciples because people need help learning what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a child of grace, not a child of the law. We're going to pursue mercy and justice in our community because we're going to see the downtrodden. and We're going to love them like Jesus loves us. We're going to take this message as far as we possibly can because there are folks that don't even know the name of Jesus who we can be the ones to pray for for the first time ever in all of eternity. The fuel for mission, the fuel for proclamation, the fuel for evangelism, the fuel for disciples, the fuel for justice and peacemaking, the fuel for missions is the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's where we find our identity, that's where we find our purpose. That's who God has made us to be. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, I thank you so much for your good word, for the revelation of Jesus that we get to see in your word. Thank you God for calling the people who were not your people, your people. People who had not received mercy, you called them to receive mercy. I thank you for Jesus who was rejected by men, but he was chosen by you, precious in your sight, and by your grace is so precious in ours. Thank you, God, for the cross and resurrection that teaches us that we can, we can go anywhere you might send us at great loss to ourselves, knowing that, that we have an identity that is imperishable, cannot fade. God, help our people, help us, help, help us, God, to believe the truth of what you've said about us. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.